For decades, America has struggled to combat the harms of drug use, but the harms have increased and the fight is endless because we've been wrong. What if we changed our drug policies to actually decrease the harms of drug use and increase thriving for all of us? Our criminal approach to drugs had a beginning and it will have an end. Join us on the journey to end it for good. Welcome to the End It For Good podcast. I'm Christina Dent, your host, along with my co-host, Mike Madison. Our hope is to provide you with short episodes that help you learn about drug prohibition and its harms and possible solutions, as well as invite you to change your mind in support of solutions that reduce harm and increase thriving, not just for people who use drugs or their families, but for all of us, people like me who don't. So today we're joined on the podcast by Liz Evans, who has spent decades working with and for people addicted to drugs. She's currently the executive director of the New York Harm Reduction Educators and the Washington Heights Corner Project in New York City. She's a former OSF fellow and co-founder of the first legally sanctioned overdose prevention site in North America called Insight, which is in Canada. She studied nursing and worked to create low-barrier programs aimed at transforming the way drug users are seen and treated, and she spent several decades doing that in a variety of ways. Liz, welcome to the show. Thank you. So I read Liz's story uh, first in the book Chasing the Scream by Johan Hari, and I found it so interesting what was happening um, where she was in Canada that I read uh, another book called Fighting for Space by Travis Lupic, which details the story of that activism <clears throat> in Vancouver to secure harm reduction services for people who use uh, drugs. And it's several spans, several decades of this um, very passionate uh, advocacy for um, securing really the the right to be treated as equal human beings with health and safety, uh, first and foremost. And it was such an interesting story that um, I wanted to have Liz on the show. So one of the quotes out of Chasing the Scream that um, really has stuck with me ever since I read the book um, is that, that Johan Hari says in Chasing the Scream about Liz's work. He says, one day a very senior government minister came to visit the safe injection rooms, which is an overdose prevention site, and to meet people who were addicted, who were using it. He asked Liz, what percentage of people who use this place would you consider to be write-offs? And she paused and looked at him, trying to figure out how to tell him that the answer is none. And um, for somebody like me who came uh, not from a place of having any exposure to, to drug use or addiction personally or with any of my friends, um, that really has been kind of the crux of what began to change my mind was really the humanizing of people who are using drugs and people who are addicted to drugs and really seeing um, them as people with a very difficult struggle rather than a labeled person who is a certain kind of way. Um, so, Liz, I'd love for you to just tell us why are you engaged in this? What was your journey um, starting on this road? You've been actively engaged in um, advocacy for harm reduction for many, many years. So what started you on this journey early in your career? Well, it's interesting. First off, thanks for having me on this show. I'm, you know, like you, not somebody who's used drugs, not somebody who has a background of even drug addiction in my family. So oftentimes people who have known me for many years from my childhood when they saw that I was doing this work would say to me, did something happen to you since I, <laughs> since I last saw you? Mm. Like, did you have a stint when you were like using? And I'm like, no, no. 
So it is in many ways odd that I got involved in this particular issue, but I was a nurse and uh, working in a hospital emergency department and also um, also working in a psychiatry hospital where I saw a lot of people who were homeless and lived on the street uh, who were mentally ill and many of whom were also addicted or using different drugs. And then, you know, ended up running this SRO hotel in the community after I left the hospital because I really felt that the solutions that people needed were more in the community of where they were living than we could actually, then we, we couldn't really do enough about the context of people's lives in the hospital. It was very sad and heartbreaking uh, cycling people through the emergency department and sending them back in many cases to the street. So what I, what I did was um, took this opportunity of a position in an SRO hotel, which is a hotel for people living on welfare, um, which serves as very vital housing in the instance where their welfare checks could secure them a very small room, but at least it was somewhere rather than the street. So my role was initially intended to be that I was going to manage 10 rooms in the context of a 70-room SRO and provide people with mental health issues some support for medication management or um, counseling. And then, um, you know, you know, to help stabilize their housing situation and get them stable on their medication, that kind of thing. But fairly quickly, what I realized in the context of this 70-room hotel that I was running was there was this desperate need for people in our community to find housing that was stable. And so I was, you know, 25, very naive and, and idealistic and just said yes to people that I felt were stuck and really needed that kind of housing and didn't have any other options. And then realized within about three months that something like 88% of the people that I had moved in were also struggling with, uh, you know, drug use, um, complicated folks with, you know, really long histories of being evicted from other forms of housing, being in and out of institutions, being in and out of prison, being in and out of hospitals, um, you know, known on the radar of many different community resources and agencies and everyone having sort of burned their bridges and not really feeling like anybody sort of wanted them anywhere. And so we became known in some ways as the hotel of last resort or a place for the folks that nobody else wanted. And that to me was um, really interesting and also incredibly sad that there were people for whom nobody really had a space. And so that was really the beginning of my entire experience with this issue. Hmm. So tell us about some of the um, harm reduction services for a lot of people that even the term harm reduction is new. What, what does that even mean? Uh, for me, before I changed my mind on um, this issue of criminalizing drugs, I would have said that drug prohibition is harm reduction. The whole point is that we're prohibiting drugs in order to reduce harm to people. So uh, help yeah. us understand what's the difference between drug prohibition and harm reduction? What does that term mean? Well, it's interesting because as a nurse, I wanted just to help people get well. And so they moved into this hotel and right away I thought, well, all these people who are using drugs, I need to get them into detox or I need to get them into treatment. And so I, you know, actively tried to work very hard to engage people to get them into systems of care. But it wasn't long before I realized that people had been through those systems in many instances multiple times. And the situation was much more complicated than than that. Um, and so that these sort of simple ideas that we can enforce our way out of this problem or we can um, even force people into treatment just weren't actually true. And so for me, my learning about why and how um, those realities don't actually exist was through just learning who people were and what their stories were. And so I would sit in this building 
many, many hours, long, long days for, you know, a good 10 years. I worked in the actual role of running the building and um, being with people in the in the rooms um, and listening to them tell me stories about, you know, their lives and the trauma that they've experienced and, you know, just the, you know, unbelievable tragedies that people had been exposed to. You know, one woman, Joyce, her seven-year-old daughter has been axed to death by her husband um, and every day she used cocaine to forget. She couldn't live with the pain of imagining hmm. her seven-year-old. Um, you know, another wo- woman I met had been, you know, multiply sexually assaulted. It just, it goes on and on. It was really one person after another who we had failed in some way or other. Even the young men, you know, this young man, Calvin, he was extremely paranoid because his father used to beat him up all the time when he was a kid and throw bottles at him and, and hurl, you know, shards of broken glass or objects at him from across the room. And so whenever he was um, using, he would get incredibly scared and he'd hide places. So he'd like have, you know, these moments of panic and then crouch down behind chairs and hide in the lobby of the hotel expecting somebody to attack him. So I was exposed to these human beings who were lovely and beautiful and had lovely stories, had horrific stories, um, and then started to think, well, what is going on here with the drugs? What is actually happening? And so it it seemed obvious to me fairly quickly that the vast majority of people that I met were medicating for other kinds of pain with the use of these substances, and that the substances themselves were, in many instances, the things that were keeping people from doing themselves more harm or actually from getting themselves in in more difficult situations and then working in the community, watching how these very same people that I would spend hours with getting to know them and listening to their stories, really caring deeply about them as people, um, how when they walked out onto the street, how they were treated. And in some instances, you know, watching police come along and literally throw them against the wall and beat them up and empty their pockets and smash their crack pipes through their syringes in their, with the heel of their boots, throw them in jail. And then watching this cycle go through and, you know, in those days, in the early 90s, that was the approach. It was just strictly an enforcement um, approach. And as a result, in the prisons and in the courts in our city, there was just people cycling through like hundreds and hundreds of them. And this hotel was one hotel in the context of a neighborhood where there was about, you know, 7,000 people who were using drugs Um it was an incredibly densely populated, very small but low-income community where there was this concentration of people who were struggling with drug use, but no services were welcoming to them. Nobody wanted to deal with them because they were active drug users. So the idea was until you were willing to change and until you were willing to stop using, you weren't really welcome anywhere. So as a result, you had all these people with these incredible problems and these really obvious struggles day to day with getting the least amount of help and the least amount of resources um, and being blamed for the situation that they were in and being vilified and hated by the system. And even, as my friend Bud said, by the system that makes compassion its calling, they hated this group of people. So sort of unbelievably shocking to be sitting in the epicenter of this and realizing that all these people um, had nowhere to go. They had no housing that was with any kinds of supports attached and everything about their day-to-day lives was made more difficult by the way that we were treating them. So unless somebody would come to me and say, oh, no, I really want to get off using, I really want to stop, I had n- absolutely nothing I could offer them except for a roof over their head. So it was quite quickly that I realized I had to 
do some things in the context of our building that would be helpful. And one of the first things that I had to do was I realized that people were leaving syringes around and that was dangerous for the staff because we decided that we were going to actively, <clears throat> excuse me, we were going to allow people who were active drug users to, to live there, not using in public spaces, but if they were users that they could use in their rooms privately in the confines of their own home, then um, we weren't going to um, call the police or arrest people. We were just going to try and provide supports to people in the context of their housing setting. And so we provided clean syringes. We did a syringe exchange in the building so that people could return the syringes that they were using and we could give them clean ones. Um, and then that provided a real opportunity for engaging and talking to people about their use, how often they were using, what they were doing. But also just simple things like asking someone, what can I do for you that you would like help with today and making that the starting point of the conversation. So in some cases, all the person wanted was just clean curtains in their room and taking the conversation away from their drug use and focusing on them and just trying to make somebody's life more comfortable and reduce the stress and to give people some breathing room to actually start feeling like a human being was actually the whole sort of philosophy. So that needle exchange program is one way that harm reduction um, kind of can take effect in a in a city or um, a, a state. And that's still very controversial. And I remember even on my journey here when I started thinking about this, I thought, OK, I can get I can kind of get behind, you know, um, ending this criminal approach to drugs. But, oh, you know, needle exchanges or overdose prevention sites, um, which are spaces where people who are addicted to drugs can come and safely use um, drugs that they have already obtained. They can come into a clinic um, and use those drugs under the care of medical uh, personnel or um, volunteers who have been trained. And it that way, if an overdose happens, there is somebody there to um, get them medical treatment. So uh, I think there can be this feeling of we're enabling harmful behavior by shifting away from kind of this all or nothing approach to a harm reduction um, approach. And I think it's important to say that that is kind of our uh, approach largely still across the world with drug use. It's it's kind of all or nothing. Either we have no way to help you or you commit to total abstinence right now and we'll offer um, support to you. So harm reduction kind of shifts that and says, it, we why don't we start by meeting people where they are and helping them take the first step towards a better life, towards more health, towards stability, towards filling their life with good things, towards drawing them into a supportive community. Instead of saying you have to jump all twenty steps at one time, we let's let's help you take that first step and then a next step, as many steps as you're able to take to have a better life, a healthier life, a life with fewer harms to yourself and to the community, how can we help you do that? Um, So what would you say, Liz, for people who are listening and for whom that kind of hairs on their neck stands up about, you know, needle exchanges and overdose prevention sites of, no, this just feels like enabling. This feels like saying it's okay. How, How do you respond to that? You obviously talk to a lot of people who probably think that. Yeah, well, I guess, I mean, my long-winded story about my own sort of journey is to say that I had that exact view and I had no idea until I was immersed in the lives of actual people who are struggling with drug use every day and seeing how much harm comes to them. 
through the way that we have been doing it historically, and then realizing that when we actually make things easier for people, the opportunities for them to get help and for their lives to be more successful actually improve. And so I use the analogy of a child with a learning disability or someone struggling in a classroom. And I say, if you've got a kid sitting in a classroom who isn't doing very well on an assignment, I think most educators and most schools and most parents understand that standing over them and screaming at them all day or belting them with a belt or shoving them in the corner and humiliating them do not increase the outcomes of their work you know, improving. Um, we understand that stress, trauma, um, things that are we battle with in our lives, like I wouldn't say to somebody, oh, you really want to quit smoking, you've been struggling and you've been trying to quit smoking, I know how about you quit right in the middle of your divorce? You're getting divorced, you're moving, your life is falling apart, you're losing your family. Why don't you try and quit smoking today? And we know intuitively that that's probably not a good idea. But somehow we think with these other drugs that have been so demonized and misunderstood, drugs like heroin and cocaine and crack and crystal methamphetamine and all these substances that in and of themselves have become the defining features of somebody's addiction or drug use, we say... We're going to make your life so difficult because those are the substances that you're using. We're going to criminalize you. We're going to push you down. We're going to exclude you from programs. We're going to, um, you know, really, you're going to be homeless. You're going to be living in a park. You know, we're going to beat you up when we see you because you're a, you're a demon junkie. We're going to, you know, rob you of your humanity. We're going to make you live outside. We're going to take away all your family members and make you the problem, not your situation not do anything to help you because we think that's going to make it easier for you to stop. And the fact that one person in New York City, where I live right now, dies every six years, every six hours of a drug overdose death should tell us that that approach is failing. So I don't think we have any more options. I don't think this idea that making things difficult for people who are using drugs improves their outcomes um, has any traction. And so, but unfortunately, we haven't as a country really talked enough about what alternatives there are. And there are so many alternatives. So and one of the things that I learned from, well, one of the things that I have seen happen and change in my life and in the lives of many people that I know who use drugs over time is that while it is a very complicated journey for people to become sober, that doesn't actually have to be the only point in which somebody attains stability in their life. So there's this entire the narrative that if the issue is the drug itself, the only way to help a person in their life is to take the drug away from that person because the problem is the drug. But if we think a bit differently about it and think, okay, this person is using these substances to medicate, self-medicate in, in the context of their life, whatever those reasons are, and that's the million-dollar question, right? Why do people use drugs to get these feelings that they are provided with? I think in the vast majority of people that I've worked with, it's to, to cope and it's not really my place to judge why, but it's a reality and it's going to happen. But if you take somebody who's in that situation and, and offer them other things, other ways of living, other things to do with their time, other ways of viewing themselves, you know, what is typically somebody who tends to be very self-hating and self-loathing, um, and I would say that is the one defining feature of all people who use drugs that I've worked with is this sense of self-hatred, of um I'm no good, I'm a bad person, I don't deserve happiness, I don't deserve to live. So we've made that, um, you know, the defining narrative and how we end up treating people. But when we turn that around and start offering other things for people to do with their time without expecting or requiring abstinence, we can actually create 
um, alternative ways for people to live with substances still in their life, and I've seen this many, many times, and people go from being a chaotic drug user living on the street homeless to somebody who is getting stable housing, has a more stable life, and their drug use stabilizes, and then their life stabilizes, their sense of self-worth improves, and then they get more and more layers in the picture, sometimes substitution therapy, sometimes you know, mental health treatment, sometimes primary care, sometimes work employment while they're still using a bit enough that they can still show up for work. Mm-hmm. But this idea that nobody can function in society and still have an issue with drug use is, is wrong, and, and I think because of that we've really limited the kinds of programs that we're creating. So that brings up an interesting um, topic and and one that, uh, as I learned about this, I kind of thought on more um, because it, it, it's almost like we're, we're stopping um, at the wrong place when we're asking questions about uh, drug use and addiction uh, as a culture. So we're kind of stopping at the point of people shouldn't be using drugs um, because it's destroying their lives. Um, and it sounds like what you're saying and, and a lot of things that I've read, too, are saying we need to take a step further back to say, why are we so focused on stopping the drug use? Isn't it because we want people to be having a better life? So really, our, our, we've kind of gotten we thought that was from stopping the drug use. Uh, and over time and better understanding trauma and the role of why people are using drugs, which we understand so much better now than we did several decades ago, uh, and the drivers for drug use and addiction, to address those drivers instead of focusing so much on the substance itself, focus on why people are using those substances. What is it doing for them? What's it providing mm-hmm. for them? And really addressing that, um, because if our goal is really for people to be not harmed and to have productive lives, um, it's kind of the shift in saying that's our focus. Instead of saying no, the way that we're going to do that is by focusing on the substances. It sounds like you're saying we have seen now that that actually isn't the driver. The substance itself isn't the driver of of what the substance means for them. It's actually much deeper um, things. And one of the things that Johan Hari kind of likens it to in his uh, Chasing the Screen book is an earthquake versus the aftershock. So we as a culture think that drug use itself is the earthquake. And then we see the aftershocks of uh, kind of this destruction in a person's life flowing out of that. And he says, I think research now shows almost, you know, the vast majority of the time that the earthquake happened before the drug use. And the drug use is actually the aftershock of the earthquake. So the childhood trauma or the grief or the loss or the abandonment or whatever it is um, in a person's life or disconnection um, in whatever way, whatever that whatever the um, the thing that kind of initiates that addiction, that's really the earthquake. And the addiction, which we've focused on for so long, we really have a hard time dealing with if we don't go further back to see what the earthquake was that actually is driving that. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think it's hard for people who've been had this narrative shoved down their throat that once you pick up drugs, that becomes the problem in and of itself. And I, I'm not in any way um, diminishing the reality of how hard it is for families who have people who are struggling with drug use in them. Um, and it is a day-to-day challenge to manage how people cope with drug use in their life. But part of that 
challenge is also in how we feel ourselves about um, the behaviors that people have when they're under the influence and what's going to make them feel safer and what's going to work. What we know isn't working is um, punishment, punitive shaming, um, enforcement, and it's like an entire continuum that's needed. And it's not that some people, when they get to the point where they want that, can't access treatment that works. But there's a whole range of things that we can do in between where we get to, which is this abstinence-based model that can help people build up what they need to succeed and have a stable life. And that's the part of the equation that sort of isn't in our education. It's not really in our public consciousness because we've over-associated the drugs themselves with the crisis. And so whether it's an existential crisis or a traumatic childhood or whatever the drivers that we're medicating, we as a society do need to ask ourselves in our communities, why are so many people being driven to, to medicate with opioids in particular at the moment? Um, you know, Gabor Mate writes about opioids and he says it's like, the experience that a lot of heroin users describe when they first inject is they call it being embraced by the needle. It's like a warm hug. And that's absolutely consistent with my experience with people who um, really enjoy the feeling that they get, get with heroin is that it's sometimes in some people's lives they say it's the first time they felt what love must feel like. And that's incredibly heartbreaking. And that's certainly been the experience of people that I've worked with. Um, and again, another thing I think that's important to think about is that when you're looking at the folks that my work's been with in the majority of the time I've spent working with people who use this, um, I'm working with people who are on the bottom of the social ladder. They're folks that have often grown up in poverty. They're folks that have often not had stable housing. Often they've grown up in foster care. Often they've been experienced to sort of systemic and structural oppression and racism and all sorts of problems in their lives that have absolutely nothing to do with drugs. And yet when they're dealing with the issues that they've had by using drugs, we look at them and say they're a byproduct of drug addiction. But you could take somebody who's grown up with money in a stable family and in a completely different environment who is using those exact same drugs often for, to go to parties, to function with their high-end corporate law job or whatever, or as a politician. And we don't say that's what drugs are doing to that person because the way they're able to purchase their drugs, the way their life looks, you know, I mean, it's sort of an interesting thing that I remember one of the first folks I ever met who was like a stable crack user and bought crack every day and used it and was still working. And I remember thinking, oh, I never thought that was possible because in my mind, crack cocaine was this drug that caused people to be so crazy and crazed and behave so crazily that they couldn't possibly function in any way normally. And yet here was this guy, Michelle, who I really loved and cared about and he was really sweet and funny and interesting. Um, and he was a stable crack user. As long as he got crack every day, he was fine. But when he drank, he was violent, he was rude, he was really agitated and difficult. Um, so sometimes, you know, we just don't understand that notion that stability for people can be achieved in different ways. That's so interesting. Um, thanks so much for joining us today, Liz. This has been a great kind of introduction into um, how does harm reduction kind of shift the way that we think about what our goals are. So I, even even in a world like I would love to see with a fully regulated um, 
and legal uh, drug market as the best way to, to reduce harm. I have no interest in using those drugs um, myself. And I still have this kind of visceral reaction to, you know, what would it be like to see, you know, a clinic um, where, you know, somebody can access heroin. <laughs> um, and I don't know, maybe I'll uh, continue to feel this kind of, oh, this still kind of um, makes me uncomfortable. But it is, it's uh, the more that I have learned, the more that I've studied about it, the more I've talked to people, um, the more my own thinking has been able to shift from, I just want to kind of do this visceral reaction to no, just shut it down. Um, I'm uncomfortable with it. Just shut it down. And instead sort of put myself in a more vulnerable situation to say, okay, we've tried just shutting it down. It hasn't worked. It's been an abject failure and disaster with millions of lives destroyed by this trying to just forcibly shut down drugs and drug use and instead going, okay, we can't do that. So what can we do? Okay, we can help people be healthier. We can provide them the next step towards good things. Um, and this is kind of what we do with other addictions like um, alcohol addiction. We don't throw people in jail for it. We don't, um, we haven't criminalized the substance. We really use a harm reduction approach with alcohol. Uh, we have kind of acknowledged as a culture there are always going to be some harms associated with alcohol. Lots of people die every year from drunk driving, which correctly is illegal to do. Um, but other people die from the, you know, problems that alcohol, uh, they have, uh, with their bodies, just the, the physical drain of alcoholism, um, and die from that. Those are tragic deaths, but we have come to accept a harm reduction model, um, with alcohol where we say the substance is with us. How can we reduce harm to people? How can we help people who are alcoholic to, have a better life and to um, live in sobriety. And that, it seems like, has been so much of your career is kind of shifting to say, how can we help people um, be able to thrive more? How can we help them be treated as full human beings, um, which I is a high value for me. I'm a Christian, so I, I believe in the sanctity of life and um, that everybody is uh, valuable uh, equally. Um, for most of my life, I just did not understand, could not relate with uh, the humanity of people who are using drugs or addicted. Um, but this has been so great. We're so appreciative mm -hmm. of your time. Uh, if you're listening and have questions and comments or want to share your story of how drug use, addiction, incarceration, or any aspect of drug prohibition has affected you, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at podcast at enditforgood.com. I'm your host, Christina Dent, along with my co-host, Mike Madison, inviting you to join us as we explore and continue exploring ending our criminal approach to drugs as the best path to reducing harm and offering more people an opportunity to thrive. So how do we end our criminal approach to drugs? By changing one mind at a time. Many people are only willing to have this conversation when they are invited to by someone they trust. That's you. Invite your friends, family, and people in your circle of influence to consider a better way. At End It For Good, our hope is that people who hear will become people who tell. Join the movement to end it for good.